Hello and welcome to Sermons by the Park, the weekly sermon podcast of Union Congregational Church in East Walpole, Massachusetts. At Union, we believe in the radical welcome of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Word of God to inspire and transform us. We're happy to share that message with you wherever you are on life's journey. Now here's this week's message. Friends, our first scripture reading this morning comes to us from the prophet Isaiah, the sixth chapter, verses one through seven. Let's listen for God's word for us here today. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were in attendance above him, each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The doorposts on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed, and your sin is blotted out. To this vision and prophecy, I want to add just a few more words. This from the book of Revelation. Nearly a thousand years later, but a similar theme, as we will hear. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, all singing with full voice, worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word here today. Just less than one year ago, the longest living monarch in modern history died. Queen Elizabeth II had become Queen of England in 1952 when she was only 25 years old. She reigned over the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth for 70 years. And when she died, she was mourned around the world after lying in state for 10 days, an elaborate funeral service and committal were held for her that was attended and viewed by millions. The funeral itself was reported by the British uh, Treasury to have cost 126 million pounds to put on, $200 million. It's an incredible price. The, service, uh, the funeral service took place in Westminster Abbey and it was packed. It was packed with dignitaries and, and royals and folks from around the world. 
They were all jammed in there shoulder to shoulder. The interior of Westminster Abbey is, is 32,000 square feet. It's about three quarters of an acre, and every square foot was covered that day. And the choir sang, and the priests prayed, and the whole space, all the way up 100 feet to the ceilings, was filled with the glory and the, and the power and the honor and the majesty of the queen. And yet for all of that, the reason they were there in Westminster Abbey was not to praise and honor the queen. The phrase in the liturgy that recurs again and again is Almighty God, King of Kings, Lord and Giver of Life. The Archbishop spoke all of these words again and again throughout the service, not of the queen, but of the God who is God. Though the queen had died, the one whose presence these folks had gathered in the sanctuary to invoke was one greater than any human being. The death of a ruler can shake the foundation of a society. It can affect people's lives in tumultuous ways. That, that wasn't really the effect of Queen Elizabeth's passing. After all, England isn't really a monarchy in the way we understand the absolute power of the monarch anymore. But some 3,000 years before Elizabeth's death, in the year King Uzziah died, it was a traumatic time for the people of Judah. The people had prospered under his reign. He had strengthened the walls of the city. He had built up its armies. Uzziah had reportedly been one who kept the law of God. He had been a faithful follower of Yahweh all of his life, and things were so good. Right up until the moment, he decided that he was going to go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and he was going to offer a burnt offering there. Which on the face of it doesn't sound like a big deal. But whether you are a common person or the king of Judah, no one is allowed in the Holy of Holies except the priests. And as the priests tried to inform the king of this on his way, and he brushed them aside, and pressed on anyway, and the moment he lit the incense, the story goes, leprosy broke out across his body, and it's what eventually killed him a few days later. The lesson here, I think, is that a king is just a king, but God is always God, in a way that no king or queen ever has been or ever shall be. And I think that was what Isaiah was trying to convey to the people in this tumultuous time when King Uzziah had died. He said to them, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lofty. I saw the King of kings, the giver of life, and the hem of his garment filled the temple. Just the hem filled the temple. Remember that 32,000 square feet of Westminster Abbey? Princess Diana famously wore a wedding dress in that same abbey in the early 1980s. She uh, walked down the aisle in this amazing dress. The train was 25 feet long. It was still just a fraction of the aisle. The aisle's 300 feet long. Now that's a wedding aisle. <laughs> but regardless of how much fabric you could assemble to fill that whole space. That is just a corner of the train of the dress that God wears. That's the impression Isaiah wants us to get. 
The prophet wants us to remember that our God is, of all things, a big God. I think part of the problem with us human beings is that we tend to fall in love with littler gods. It's particularly true today when perhaps the God we worship the most is the God of our own selves, the image of ourselves that we hope to achieve or to accomplish. In a recent essay about uh, the reasons people stop going to church, a, a writer named Jake Meter, he argued that the defining problem driving people out of the church today is how American life works in the 21st century. He says, contemporary America doesn't, isn't set up for mutuality, care, or common life. Rather, it is designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. He's drawing in that essay upon the findings of a, a, a book written by Pastor Jim Davis and Michael Graham called uh, The Great De-Churching, where they're trying to make sense of survey data that shows the reasons why people have been not attending church, why people stop attending church. Now, there are some folks who experience, have bad experiences at church, who experience trauma and abuse, who have theological differences with the congregations of which they're part. But the vast majority these surveys find, of people stop attending church, not because of any great trauma or any great theological controversy. It's more like there's a Sunday where someone has a baby shower, and you got to go to the baby shower. You can't not be there. And then the next Sunday, maybe you're tired because you had a long week at work. And then maybe the next Sunday, there's a soccer game or a hockey tournament or this or that. And sooner or later, people just fade away. And then there comes the guilt. That sense that the second they show up in church, they're going to hear that comment, which usually I think is offered in good faith, but still, still strikes people the wrong way sometimes. Gee, I haven't seen you in such a long time. It's great to see you. It stings a little bit. It's a reminder of your absence. But of course, Meter says that this is all in the context of, of, of a culture of individual accomplishment, where what other people think of you is what matters most. But a vibrant, life-giving church, Meter argues, requires more and not less time and energy from its members. It asks people to prioritize one another, to prioritize the life of the church over their career, to prioritize prayer and reading scripture, over individual accomplishment. And given the context, that sounds like a tough sell. But I think it only seems that way because the God that we worship too often is too small and too much like us and not enough like God. Because our God is a big God, bigger than anything in the world, big enough to hold and to handle all that the world gives and takes from us. Rulers may come and go, political turmoil may roil the country, cultures may change, new words and mannerisms may become socially acceptable or unacceptable. There may be famine, there may be fire, there may be pandemics, there may be storms. But through all of that, God is still God. Because God is not just big in space, God is big in time. All of these moments are but a flash in the pan. 
That's the vision of God we are confronted with today in the vision to Isaiah and then again to John of Patmos, another prophet speaking to the church in a time of great uncertainty. The vision is, is of a God that is almighty and eternal, big, but also so big and so strange, it's almost unrecognizable. In Isaiah's vision, there are these seraphim surrounding the throne of God. In Revelation, it's the living creatures, which if you read that part of Revelation, are described as having horns and eyes popping out every which way and uh, very strange sorts of thing. And they're all there. This vision of myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands of angels all around this throne and a lamb on the throne too. The seraphim are surrounding God. They're covering their face. And they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. That word holy means set apart, means sacred. The holiness of God is in part about God's perfection. Something that is so utterly foreign to us that we cannot hope to attain it. That perfection comes with power. The fact that God has the power to create all of this, to make this whole big world and to rule over it perfectly. The German theologian Rudolf Otto calls the concept of holiness a mystery both terrifying and fascinating. It's terrifying because when we think about God, when we think about the bigness of God, we recognize how far we are from that. But we're fascinated by the fact that we should be like that. We could be like that. And we're fascinated by that because God invites us to be like that. Sometimes the word should makes us feel a little anxious. The things we should do, the things we know we should think, the way we should feel. It can make us anxious when we don't feel those way because it sets an expectation that we don't feel like we can meet. But the truth is, is that sometimes we need to set expectations that draw us beyond ourselves towards the glory and vision of God. That's what happens to Isaiah. Just as he's standing there, he realizes, woe is me. This is the king of kings, lord of lords, and I am a man of unclean lips among a people who don't know the meaning of holiness. What am I supposed to be doing here? Just at that moment, though, a messenger comes from God and offers him purification, redemption, cleansing from all that keeps him and holds him back from God. Not only in that moment is Isaiah not consumed by the wrath of God or by the fiery beasts. The next verse is that really famous verse from Isaiah where he says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Now that he has been cleansed, now that he has been redeemed, Isaiah has the courage to say, Here I am, Lord. Send me. See, the majesty and power of God always comes hand in hand with the goodness and the grace of God. The king is on the throne, but the lamb is there too. The lamb who was sacrificed so that we may be redeemed. I wonder if Meter is right, that the problem with the church today is that we are not willing to sacrifice 
individual accomplishment for the glory of God? What if our problem is that we've settled for a little God with only a little grace? A God who's nice to know, but whose people sometimes give us grief. <laughs> Instead of the big God, the big God who also is full of grace. Perhaps the problem is that we are not setting the bar high enough for who God is, and in turn not setting the bar high enough for who the church can be. So this morning, we recognize that there is a chasm today. There is a chasm between what is and what we hope should be. We recognize that the church is small, that the faithful seem few, and scattered. But just because that is the way it is, is not the way it ought to be. And rather than allowing that should to make us feel anxious, we should recognize that it comes with a measure of graciousness far greater than we could ever ask or imagine. What if the church was a place where instead of being a sanctuary from the anxieties of the world, those anxieties Isolation, loneliness, hurt, pain was welcomed into it. What if the church was a place where people didn't fear judgment, but embraced grace and forgiveness? That's what it's supposed to be. That's what it's supposed to be, because at the center of the church is the Lamb who was slain, Jesus Christ, who offered himself on the cross. Not because he had done anything wrong, but because only by his sacrifice and the sacrifice that those who follow him are willing to make is the grace of God poured out into this world. I'm, I'm convinced that in this season of de-churching, which is not just affecting this church, but many, many churches like it, in this season we have to demand more and not less of ourselves. We have to set the bar high for ourselves. Because that's how we meet the God who is God, the God who is bigger than our fears and our anxieties. And so it's in that spirit that I'm thinking ahead to two weeks from today. We call that Sunday Rally Sunday, typically. It's when the choir comes back. It's when Sunday school starts again. This, this year, it's the Sunday right before the fair when you know people will be standing up and and, and making sure we get all the volunteers we need to make that moment happen. But this year, I don't want to just think about Rally Sunday as those things. I want this to be a Sunday where we genuinely are all in for this church. And that means, those of you who are here, think about the people you haven't seen in a while. Think about the people who maybe used to come but don't come anymore. The people whose presence you miss, people whose presence you don't miss, but the people whose absence you notice. Those of you who are joining us at home, if, if, if you're just joining us because, you know, you didn't feel like getting up and getting out this morning, I understand that. Maybe this is not your day, but two weeks from today, let that be the day that you close the distance, that you come here and you join us in person to be together as the people of God. There's something about being together. We lost sight of that, I think over the last few years, how important it is to be together, to experience that spirit of togetherness. 
But of course, there are people who join us from far afield. And you know what? To those members, too, I say, join us in two weeks on Facebook. I want to see you in the comments. I want to see you greeting one another. I know we got folks down in Florida and Maine and the Cape and all over the place. I want this church to be all in together on September 17th. Because church is where we come together to seek a God that is bigger than our fears and our anxieties. Where we come to meet a God who knows who we are, knows where we've been, knows the struggles we've had, knows the difficulties and the challenges that we have to overcome, knows that we are making a sacrifice of our time elsewhere so that we can put in the time here together, giving it to God and to one another to grow in faith and love to grow into the spirit that God has given us. Because before there were kings and queens, before there was the almighty dollar, before there was this worship of individual accomplishment, God knew each and every one of us better than we know ourselves. And God made us to be better than we can ever ask or imagine. We were not created to live in fear or anxiety about what we should do or to be forsaken to a culture that offers us a false promise of peace of mind instead of the deep peace that comes with connection to the eternal. We were made to be redeemed by God. The God who made us, the God who is still with us, who is seated on the throne, seated high above, setting the bar for us, higher than we are able to reach ourselves, but by the grace of God which we can reach through God's help. That same God is here with us now, watching and hoping in this moment that we will rise to the occasion so that God can share this big vision of peace and justice and grace and forgiveness with this church, with this community, with this world. And so this morning, I say to the one upon the throne and to the Lamb, to our big God, to our gracious God, be all glory and honor and blessing and might forever and ever. Amen.